I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew 7, verse 12. If you're just a guest this morning, we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7, and we're drawing closer and closer to the end. Today we're going to be looking at verse 12 in chapter 7. I want to begin by sharing a story. When I was 18, I had graduated high school, and I spent a good chunk of that first summer working at the, uh, the MB Church Camp in Ontario, Camp Crossroads. Perhaps some of you have heard of it. I had never worked on staff before, and they, they actually normally at Camp Crossroads, you would be a counselor in a cabin one week, and the next week you would be on program staff, and they would alternate it that way so that you would get a little bit of a break. It was a little bit less responsibility, a few less hours in a day when you, didn't, you weren't responsible for campers. But they, they were short male counselors, and so I ended up in a cabin a number of weeks in a row. And one of the, the last weeks where I was in a cabin again, um, there, there was another guy who I'd actually graduated from, not a close friend, but his name was Mark. And so he, they, they put us both in there as co-counselors that week so that the, the load would be a little lighter. And so, uh, so we were, the cabins kind of had two sides. Mark was on one side, I was on the other side. And, uh, and it, was, it was going along fine that week. I remember one particular supper... Uh, the kids uh, were egging one another on. It, the, the supper was a big hit. One kid named Graham, uh, he particularly really loved supper. It was burritos. And I had never seen uh, anyone eat as many burritos as that little kid did. He was probably about 10 years old. He pounded them away. I'm sure he was in, in, encouraged on by the others in the cabin. Um, and the number 14 sticks out in my mind, though I don't think that's even physically possible for a 10-year-old. But, but whatever it was, it was an impressive amount of burritos. And we ate, and then we did our evening activities, thought nothing more of it, till sometime in the night, Mark wandered over from his side of the cabin to my side of the cabin, and he said, Dennis, Graham threw up. And my first thought was, Graham's on your side of the cabin. But I got up, and I grabbed my flashlight, and I walked over there, and I began to anticipate just from the smell. And I turned the flashlight on. Graham was on the top bunk. I walked over there, and here's this kid sitting there covered with burritos. And his hair, his face, his pajamas, his sleeping bag was full of what looked like more than 14 burritos. Remember, I am, I'm an 18-year-old kid. I've never done this before. I know parents are like, old hat, right? You've dealt with that. Never before had I encountered something like that. And, and I thought, what do you, what do you even do? And, and so I peeled his pajamas off and stuff's dripping. And anyways, we brought him to the washroom and kind of washed him off a little bit with wet paper towels. And then I thought, what do you do? This, it's the middle of the night. And so I brought him over to my bunk and I said, there, why don't you sleep in my sleeping bag? Still with remnants, I'm sure we didn't get it all off. And then I went back to his bunk and I just bundled everything up and I hauled it up in the middle of the night to the camp laundry room. And I thought, I, I didn't know lots about doing laundry, uh, but I thought I should probably not just throw this directly into the washer. So I put it in the laundry sink and I began washing this off and the drain plugged. I couldn't get anything to go down. I, I found a plunger. I worked on it like for an hour and a half. I could not get anything to go down. And then I discovered a switch. There was a carburetor, and it just it disappeared real quickly. But anyways, finally I put it in the washer and waited for it to finish. And I put it in the dryer and waited for it to dry. And I went back to the cabin, and I made his bed. And then I went and woke him and put him back in his bed. And then I crawled into my vomit-filled bag. Not filled, but anyways, remnants. 
I share this story with you. Uh, not just, it's not just a gross camp ministry story, though it certainly is that. I, I share it because it's a picture of the life of the kingdom. It, it's a picture of the life of the kingdom when the future breaks into the present, when heaven spills into the earth, when the gospel takes root in our hearts and begins to transform us. The verse we're looking at today, Jesus is going to say this, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is prefaced by the announcement of good news, that in the coming of Jesus of Nazareth, a whole new order of existence is broken in, that the life of the kingdom has invaded the earth, that the future is spilling into the present. That, that when the good news takes uh, hold of a person, something happens, and that something that happens is described by Jesus in this sermon. That something that happens is the creation of a new kind of humanity. Men and women, young and old teenagers, who exhibit new characteristics, new character, new ambitions, new behaviors, new, new purposes, new ways of living in this world. The Sermon on the Mount, I've been contending, is not... Jesus giving us a new law. It's not Jesus giving us the old law cranked up on steroids. It's not a new set of rules. No, rather here Jesus is painting a picture of a new kind of humanity, gospelized humanity. Humanity being brought into existence by the power of the gospel, the power of the cross, and the power of the Spirit of God in us. Verse 12, I quoted part of it for you, the verse we're looking at today. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 7 Verse 12, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. There are four things that I want to do with you in the time we have together this morning. First, a couple observations. Secondly, I want to talk about how this verse, verse 12, fits into the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus has been telling us. Third, I want to look at the problem we face, and fourth, the solution Jesus brings. So a couple observations to begin with. These words, do to others what you would have them do to you, has been known since around the 8th century as the golden rule. Uh, Even in our secular culture that is anything but Christian, uh, many people would be familiar with the golden rule. They would they would have heard this. They perhaps even repeated it. They might not know where it comes from. They might not know that this came from Jesus, but, but many will be familiar with the golden rule. Interestingly, and perhaps you're not aware of this, uh, similar things have been said by, by others uh, before Jesus. Uh, it comes out of other religious traditions, other philosophies. Uh, Confucius, for example, living 500 years before Jesus, said, is credited with saying this, do not to others what you would not wish done to yourself. In uh, the book of Tobit, which is part of the Apocrypha, books that were written between the Old Testament and New Testament, not Scripture, but, but here's what we read in Tobit 4. And what you hate, do not do to anyone. Uh, similarly, Rabbi Hillel, who was uh, around just shortly before Jesus, he said this, he taught this, what is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow creatures. That is the whole law. All else is explanation. It's interesting that others were saying similar things, but I want to note for you that what Jesus said and what others said are actually quite different. You see, all the others are are said, expressed as the negative. Don't do things that are hateful to you. Don't do to others things that you wouldn't want done to yourself. Whereas what Jesus said is, 
do to others what you want them to do to you. That's very different. If there are things that I don't want done to me, I don't want anyone chirping me for my hockey team losing, or I I don't want someone cutting me off, or I don't want someone slugging me in the face, so I'm not going to do those things to them. I'm not going to chirp their hockey team. I'm not going to go swinging at them or or cutting them off, being a jerk on the road. I, I, I can avoid doing those negative things if I don't want them to do those negative things to me or in hopes that they won't do those negative things to me. But positively, it's very different. We're told if there's something that that you want, uh, a way you want others to treat you, you should do those things for them. If, If you want people to be patient with you, if you want people to be caring towards you, if you want people to love you, then do those things to them. Care for them, be patient with them, love them. It's very different. This negative versus positively. Positively, you you need to engage with people. Negatively, I can just kind of avoid you. Hey, I'm not going to do anything negative. I'll I'll avoid you. I'll avoid people and just kind of do my thing so that I'm not bugging anyone. I'm not messing with him. But but to obey what Jesus is saying means engaging positively. If I'm going to love them, if I'm going to care for them, that means engaging with them. I need to do good. It is ultimately a matter of reflecting God's goodness, God's character that Jesus is calling us to do, to to be good to others, to be gracious to others, to be loving towards others, to be caring. And so though we encounter similar uh, things taught, there's something unique about what Jesus taught us. He taught us to do good, to positively engage and do to others what we want them to do to us. Let's, Let's look secondly now at how this fits How does this fit with what Jesus has been saying? How does this fit with the Sermon on the Mount? Uh, Verse 12 begins in the NIV. It says so. Uh, It could could be translated therefore. In in the the original, it's the same word that's translated therefore. And I said to you a couple weeks ago, whenever we see a therefore, we ask what the therefore is therefore. Um, So we need to ask what's going on here? How does this connect to what has come before? Well, in the immediate context, last week if you were here, Jesus taught us to pray, to pray with great trust in God and to pray persevering, that we are to ask, we are to seek, we are to knock, we're to continue to do those things. We're to pray with that persistence, that perseverance, trusting in God's goodness because God, God gives good gifts to those he loves, right? If, if you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts, how much more will God, your heavenly Father, give good gifts to those who ask? That's what is comes immediately before this, and, and if you're like me, you ask, okay, what's the therefore? Therefore, is the, the connection with that isn't immediately obvious. Uh, Luke expresses the golden rule in his gospel, and he puts it in a different place. Let me read from Luke chapter 6. Here's how he, where he includes it. He says this, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you, If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others what you would have them do to you. That's the context where Luke puts it, in this context of loving enemies, of sacrificial giving up of things. And and so it really makes sense. Do to others what you'd have them do to you, even to your enemies. So what's going on in Matthew's gospel where he puts it after this call to prayer? Why does Matthew include it at this point? And and I want to suggest that we find an important clue uh, by what Luke does not include in his text that Matthew does here. 
Luke and Matthew both say, do to others what you would have them do to you. But only Matthew says, for this sums up the law and the prophets. This sums up the law and the prophets. If you've been with us through this series, or if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, you know you'll be remembering maybe, or I'm jogging your memory now, that earlier, near the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in chapter 5, verse 17, he said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This is the second time in the Sermon on the Mount that we encounter this language of law and prophets. And I would contend that that's not that's not unintentional. The expression the law and the prophets, if you were with us back when we looked at the beginning of chapter 5, is one way in which biblical writers refer to the Old Testament scriptures, to, to what was the revealed word of God, the, the only Bible they had. The, the law and the prophets is, is a short form to say God's written word, the scriptures. And, and so that's the case here. Jesus is saying, do to others what you'd have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. This sums up all that the Old Testament teaches, all that God calls you to through the Old Testament scriptures. So, here Jesus is asserting that the golden rule, doing to others what we want them to do to us, sums up the law and the prophets. That it's all captured in this one, call it the golden rule. We encountered that same language earlier on in chapter five saying, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. That same basic idea, by the way, that that the the law, the Old Testament uh, demands on us are summed up in a a summary statement. We find that in a number of other places in the New Testament. Matthew 22, later on in this gospel, Jesus will say this. When an expert in the law came to him uh, to, to test him, Uh, He asked him what the greatest commandment was. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Similar summarizing statement. The Apostle Paul says something similar in Romans 13. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. In Galatians 5.14, Paul writes, For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. So numerous places throughout the New Testament, in the words of Jesus and the lips of the Apostle Paul, we are pointed to these summary statements that say the the law, the the Old Testament, all the demands of it, what, what we're called to, are summed up in in this idea of loving your neighbor, which comes out of love for God. Uh, loving your neighbor, doing to others what we'd have them do to us. We, we want to be loved and so love them. The, these are summary statements that, uh, that summarize all that the Old Testament has to say to us. Doing good, loving others, is at the heart of the Old Testament scriptures. It's the heart of what God, through the Old Testament, is calling us to. So here's what I want you to see. In Matthew 5, 17... Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets. And here in Matthew 7, 12, Jesus says, so therefore, do to others what you want them to do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. I want to contend that those are two brackets. And what the therefore is pointing to is all that has preceded that. That is, Jesus is pointing back to all that he has been teaching us through chapter 5 and 6 and 7. He's saying, now in, in light of all I've taught, 
do this one thing, this, this one thing, doing to others what you'd have them do to, to you, summarizes everything I've been teaching you in, in the same way that it summarizes all that the Old Testament called you to. And that is Jesus has been, I have been contending, he's been painting a picture of gospelized living. That is what our lives look like when the good news of God's love and grace takes root in our lives, when his spirit pours in and he begins to transform us, we begin to live this way. We begin to do to others what we would have them do to us. This, I would say, is is in alignment with what God has always wanted his people to do. With the teaching of the Old Testament, Jesus says that, that, that this summarizes all of that. And think with me about the things that Jesus has taught thus far through the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, we're coming towards the end here, and, and, and Jesus has touched on a wide range of things. He, he said earlier on in chapter 5, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And if you recall when we walked through those, it wasn't that Jesus was, was negating what had been said in the Old Testament. He said, you've heard it said, don't, don't murder anyone. But I say to you, if you have hate in your heart, you're already guilty. Jesus is helping us to understand what God's desire was all the time. See, if we hear the command, don't commit murder, and we think, hey, as long as I don't spill someone's blood, then I'm good, we've missed God's point. We've missed God's desire. God's desire is that we would not only not kill people, but that we wouldn't harbor hatred in our hearts. The same thing when it comes to adultery. Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, the person who lusts, is guilty of adultery. God cares more than just the externals. It's not just a matter of jumping in a bed with someone you're not married to. It's about what's going on between your ears. Jesus has spoken about uh, oaths and how we are to be those who speak the truth. He's spoken of God's design for marriage and said divorce is not God's desire. His desire is that in marriage it would be permanent and lifelong, that you would commit yourself to one another. He's spoken about the need for us to renounce revenge and retaliation. He has called us to love enemies, to love those who curse us, who are against us. He's told us that we are to to give to the needy and we're to seek God in prayer, not for the applause of others, but simply because it's a reflection of God's heart because we desire God. He, He has been showing us what a gospelized life looks like. He's been showing us the life that he has always desired for his people. See, this is not a new law. I've said that over and over. It's not the old law cranked up. It's what Jesus is describing is a reflection of what God has always desired. That is, men and women who would reflect his character. Men and women who would love him and love neighbor. Men and women who who would do to others what we want them to do to us. He's been painting a picture of restored, redeemed humanity gospelized humanity, when the good news of his, his sin-atoning death, his love and his grace takes root in our hearts, we are changed. We begin to be changed. When his spirit indwells us, he begins to empower us in new ways of living, the ways he has been describing throughout the Sermon on the Mount, which is a reflection of what he has called us to all along. Matthew five seventeen and seven twelve are brackets, an inclusio that that aims to show us all of this is what he has in mind. All of this is summed up. The halal and the prophets and all that Jesus has taught us is summed up in this one line, do to others what you would have them do to you. See, the wrong conclusion that many of us come to is that the Old Testament and New Testament are radically different, that 
that the Old Testament is all about law and the New Testament is all about grace. We come to the conclusion somehow that, that what the Old Testament calls us for is it's, it's the law, it's about the law, and the, the law is bad, and it's anti-gospel, and the New Testament is, it's good because it's about the gospel, and it's anti-law, and, and we put the Old Testament and New Testament at, at odds with one another. But I want to suggest that that is to misread the Scriptures. Jesus says here in the middle of his Sermon on the Mount, or at the end of his Sermon on the Mount, that, that all the law and the prophets is summed up in this one thing, to do to others as we want them to do to us. That, that is really a summary statement for all that he has taught. And so, and as Jesus said earlier in chapter 5, the Old Testament remains valid and binding all its requirements. Remember what he said back in chapter 5. Do not think I've come to abolish the law of prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus says the Old Testament law stands. All its demands. It doesn't go away. I've not come to abolish it. And so we need to recognize here that Jesus in this summary statement, do to others what you would have them do to you, is a summary statement of all that Old Testament scriptures call us to, all that he has been fleshing out for us here in the Sermon on the Mount. That obedience to the law means doing to others as he wants us to do to one, uh, uh, what we want them to do to us. Which leads us to the third thing I want to talk about, and that is our problem, the problem that we are left with. If the law stands, we have a problem because none of us do this. None of us get this right. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this, we do not do unto others as we would wish them to do unto us because the whole time we are thinking only about ourselves and we never transfer our thoughts to the other person. He he asserts, Lloyd-Jones makes the point, and we recognize this, that that every one of us has this deep self-centeredness, this selfishness that that is part of who we are. Apart from Christ, it's it's there, and, and even... As those in Christ, we, we need to wrestle against that and put it to death. We, we recognize this self-centeredness. And so, so what do we do? We recognize this if we're honest. About 10 days ago, I think I was driving from my home to here. And I, I, was, I was at a red light on 34th Street at 38th Avenue by the Sobeys. And uh, the light turned green and I proceeded through the intersection. And moments later, I heard a loud crash. I looked in my rearview mirror. And the car that was behind me had a T-bone by a car running the light at 38th Avenue. And, and they hit it pretty hard. I mean, I looked up and I saw the car still moving, sharing the same space, which is, I remember the definition of an accident when I took driver's ed. And so I, I watched for a moment as I drove, you know, watching the road too, um, and, and I looked, and, and what I saw actually a little bit surprised me, because this car had gotten hit pretty hard. And what I saw was two lanes of traffic just going around, driving past. Like, this accident just happened right in front of you, but I guess it would be too much to stop and see if everyone's okay, to be a witness for this, uh, it turned out to be a woman driver, her mom sitting next to I turned around and I came back and got there and there were some, some injuries, but I provided a statement and no big hero, I think you're supposed to do that, isn't that the, the law even? But, but like... I was stunned at how many people I saw just drive past because, you know, got places to go, things to do. We are self-centered. And so we don't naturally do to others what we would have them do to us. We 
look out for number one. We put ourselves in the driver's seat, put ourselves at the center, and, and so that's a problem. So that brings us to the fourth thing I wanted to talk about, and that is the solution that Jesus brings. The, the good news that transforms us. The good news that transforms our lives. What does it mean that Jesus came to fulfill the law? If you were with us back when we looked through that text earlier in Matthew 5, you, you may remember some of what I said, but I, I want to remind you of a few things. Jesus has been teaching us what the law really meant, right, about murder. It's, it's about more than just the externals, about adultery. It's more than just the externals. God cares about our heart. He, he wants to transform us, the very core of who we are. Jesus has been teaching us what the law is all about, what God's desire, his design for humanity is. But I want you to, to recognize this, that the unity of the biblical story. The, the Old Testament and the New Testament are not at loggerheads. The the whole Scripture, Genesis through Revelation, is telling a single unified story. And and so when we read the Old Testament, we we need to recognize, we need to see that it is in fact a story about Jesus. In the Garden of Eden, Jesus is the offspring who will crush the head of the servant. In in the, the story of Abraham, Jesus is the sacrificial animal caught in the thicket that gets sacrificed in the place of Isaac. In the Exodus, Jesus is the bread from heaven. Sorry, he is the Passover lamb whose blood is shed and spread on a doorpost so that the angel of death passes over. In the wilderness, the story of the Hebrews in the wilderness, Jesus is the bread from heaven that gives life. He is the water from the rock. He is the rock that is struck. In the story of Leviticus, Jesus is there present in every one of the offerings given. He is the day of atonement through, through whom God, a holy God, can dwell in the presence of unholy, sinful people, unclean people. In the book of Jonah, he's the one tossed into the sea that we might be saved. He is the tabernacle and the temple, the place of God's presence. Throughout the pages of the Old Testament scriptures, if we read them well, we will see that they're pointing us to Jesus. And we will understand as well that that when we read the Old Testament, it's not like the Old Testament's all about law and God's people just screwed up and and didn't do it, and so now here's grace in the New Testament. If we read the Old Testament, we will see grace and grace and more grace. You tell me, how how do do you read through the book of Leviticus, all that blood shed, and not think of Jesus on the cross shedding his blood for us? The Old Testament drips with grace. Grace. The problem is, the life we're called to, we we couldn't live. And there needs to be a sacrifice, a greater sacrifice, because the blood of of lambs and of goats don't take away sin. And so the whole Old Testament story is pointing ahead to Jesus. When, When he on the cross will shed his blood through faith in him, we will finally actually be cleansed, purified, forgiven. The whole Old Testament story points ahead to Jesus. And see, that the law will be fulfilled. The law tells us that the penalty for our sin is death, which is why Jesus had to go to the cross. He went to the cross and endured the death that you and I deserve in our place because the law needed to be fulfilled. And so he drank the cup of God's wrath for all our sin and our rebellion. See, we, we want God to go, hey, your sin, not really a big deal. We'll just let that go. But that, that, that can't happen. 
God is a holy God. God is, as J.I. Packer says, allergic to sin. He can't simply brush it off and say, no big deal. It is a big deal. It is an offense to his holiness. And so God the Father sends Jesus a son who willingly, joyfully goes to the cross and dies the death that you and I deserve in our place. And not only that, not only did Jesus die, but Jesus lived. Jesus lived a life of full obedience, complete submission to the Father. He lived a life of obedience that you and I are called to live, but we're unable to live by our own power. The life that we failed to live. The life of obedience to Him, reflecting His character, doing to others what we would have them do to us. We, We couldn't do it. But through faith in Jesus, we are credited for his righteousness. His perfection is, is deposited into your account and mine. The Father looks at you and sees the obedience, the submission, the perfection of his Son. We are righteous because of Christ. Furthermore, God not only forgives us and clothes us with his righteousness, but again, in the Old Testament, God promises that one day he will empower us to live a new life, this gospelized life. Listen to these words from the prophet Ezekiel. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. The the promise in the Old Testament scriptures is that one day God would do a new thing. He would replace our hearts. He'd give us a new heart. He'd fill us with his spirit and transform our lives that we would obey him. Is that not exactly what Christ has been describing? This gospelized life, this life that is born out of the good news of his love and his redemptive death in our place and his imputation of his righteousness and his filling us with his indwelling presence to live a new life? This is what Jesus has been describing throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Gospelized men and women, teenagers, boys and girls, human beings restored, new character, new ambitions, new motives, new behaviors. Life by the Spirit. Our vision says deeper, closer, bolder, right? Deeper in intimacy with Christ, uh, closer in relationships with one another, bolder on mission for the lost. But that those three parts of our vision are all... Uh, Founded on something. Two really important things. Grounded in the gospel, that is the good news of Christ's finished work and empowered by the Spirit. The life we are called to is not a life that you and I can live, that we can produce by our own strength and striving. It is a life produced by reliance on the Holy Spirit who indwells us. It is Spirit-empowered. Paul describes it as the new way of the Spirit. Our lives, through the Spirit, produce fruit of the Spirit. We begin to live differently. We begin to live the life of the future now. We begin to love people the way the Lord has loved us. We begin to do to others what we want them to do to us. The law has never been a means to get right with God or to stay right with God. It is a picture of who we are created to be, a reflection of God's character, and that never changes. Christ 
comes so that the law might be fulfilled, that he would show us what the law really means, that he would pay the penalty that the law demands, that he would empower us to live the life of obedience and holiness, growing, not, not perfection. It's not sinless perfection, but divine infection. The gospel taking root and producing change slowly sometimes. We don't always see it. But slowly, Christ is having his way in us, changing us into men and women who reflect the character of God, men and women who reflect the character of Jesus. So what does this look like in our lives practically? What does this look like? Looks like washing vomit out of some kid's sleeping bag and letting him sleep in your own bed. It it, it looks like doing to others the things that we want them to do to us. The life of discipleship, of following Christ, life of the kingdom, is actually not particularly complicated. We, We don't need experts Jesus says here we simply need to consult our our own interests. How do we want to be treated? How how do we want to be loved, cared for? And and then then we respond that way towards others. We take our eyes off of self. We look to Christ on the cross and how he gave himself for us. And then we give ourselves for others. I, I want you to imagine In our culture, I want you to imagine the impact this would have if we individually and corporately, if we, as we grow in this, how might God impact our community, our families, our neighborhoods, Edmonton, as we increasingly, by the gospel and the power of the Spirit, do to others what we would have them do to us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your love and for your grace. We thank you for the marvelous picture you have been painting of who you created us to be. Lord, that that we don't do anything to get right with you, but because of what you have done in us, your forgiveness, your righteousness that clothes us, your indwelling spirit, now you are restoring us, you are transforming us into men and women who reflect your likeness, your character. We live as your regents, your ambassadors in this broken, sinful, dark world. Jesus, I pray that you would so work in us that we individually and corporately might grow in all that this means for us to do to others what we would have them do to us. Lord, would you use us to accomplish your transformation in this world in little and small ways? To that we commit ourselves, Jesus. Amen.